Thank you very much, uh, Sister Elsie and the Andrews Academy Band. Those songs are such blessings. And as I was listening this morning, I'm just re-reminded of how many songs actually are motivating and prompting us to an active warfare with evil. And uh, we just, this year, even though we celebrated 500 years of the Protestant Reformation four years ago, it was 500 years ago this year that Martin Luther stood before the Diet of Worms and he declared his speech. You know, here I am, I can do no other, God help me. And that was in April of this year. We are in the 500th anniversary year of this mighty uh, warrior for God. So whether it's the Battle Hymn of the Republic or whether it's Lead On, O God Eternal, uh, these songs are set in a picture frame of a warfare with evil that is aggressive. And they are perfectly in alignment with the Spirit's leading for me this morning as I share with you from the Word of God. So thank you, and let's pray. Lord, we are in your house this morning. We are looking for your provision. And I'm asking now that you would bless us with your presence to teach, to touch, to transform. Guide us now, I ask, and may there be a watch before the door of my mouth and a guard before my lips, and I pray also for a holy boldness in Jesus' name, amen. We are this morning in a very unique place in the history of freedom. Uh, we are on the cusp of great and momentous things. And while there may be a broad spectrum of feeling about issues related to our pandemic, there tends to be in the heart of most Christians, and I would dare say most Americans, a sense that there is a place for personal and bodily autonomy in regards to decision-making about elements like the vaccine. My sermon this morning is entitled Scorpions, Snakes, and Microbes, the Unstoppable Gospel. Now, whether or not you believe in certain mitigations or not, there is one thing this morning that most Adventists are quite convinced of, and that is the rapidity of the movements that lock down our world and the reach of intrusion into personal life is a, has a semblance of future or eschatological. That, mean, that word means relating to the end times. It has some future sense of the power of the world to turn towards the sense of common good and restrict and remove individual decision-making. In this case, it relates around something that has the power to divide us, which is public health. In the future, it will relate to something that also will have the power to divide us, and that will be how we worship, when we worship, and where we worship in regards to freedom. This morning, what I'd like to do with you, aside from wherever you might be on that perspective, that spectrum of belief about mitigation. I'd like to make sure you understand how to be ready. Because not being ready 
is not just some kind of earthly or temporary loss. Not being ready will be eternal loss. For there is a testing coming, there is a shaking coming, and the devil is spying, trying, and lying his way into our culture and sometimes our own hearts to try to keep us from inheriting what Jesus paid such an immense price to give us. I would like to take you back just about six days ago, uh, actually just a tad bit more than that, last week, uh, we were getting off an airplane in San Salvador. Now over the last several years, even during the last couple of years, we have had an interest in advancing God's cause wherever He leads us. In this church, He's led us to a close relationship with the El Salvadorian Union where the organization Reach Out, which is one that we cooperate with, has built over 100 churches at $10,000 apiece. That's a million plus dollars invested in the El Salvador Union. You've never read about it in a magazine. You've never seen it on a web page. But it's a ministry that some dedicated lay people have committed themselves to, and churches in Oregon, in Indiana, and in Michigan have joined in supporting this church here has supported the building of numerous churches. There's also a college that's being built there so that young people in Honduras and Guatemala and El Salvador who can't afford uh, the tuition at some of the more developed inter-American countries could come and learn simple things. They could be taught education and ministry and other things. That college is going forward. When the pandemic started, this church actually had a... Uh, advance guard of people that had gone down there and had to turn around and leave because El Salvador was one of the few countries, it and India, who had declared that they were closing their borders uh, to Americans. And it turned out that we slipped out of the country just in the nick of time. It saved 130 other people from coming down there. We would have lost all of our revenues invested in the airline companies. God spared us from that. But God's work is not quite that easily stopped. And the five unions in that uh, mission that are all in the size, <laughs> you could fit the whole El Salvadorian Union from Plymouth, Indiana up to the border of Michigan. 200,000 Adventists, over 1,000 congregations. If you have that many churches between Plymouth, Indiana, and the border with Michigan, you couldn't go to a town. There aren't that many towns in northern Indiana. But I want you to imagine a thousand congregations, five unions. It is a mission, which means it does not financially have the wherewithal to support itself. It is a mission whose revenues are equal to largely the revenues of this one church here this morning. And it needs what we have to offer. And they gather together, and every mission is giving the salary for five employees, five masons, to come work on that building. Reach Out is providing the salary for 13 more. So there's about 30-some masons working on this college. And the first wing of the college is going up nicely. At the mission segment this morning, we'll share uh, pictures in regard to that. But we're walking off the airplane, and our group has about seven or eight people in it. And the first part of the group slipped farther down the one terminal of the airport. And we were standing there waiting for two more people from our, from our group. And we waited, and we waited, and we waited. And finally, I'm thinking to myself, 
I don't think you could get lost in this airport very easily, but maybe they took a wrong turn. So one of our members walks back and he's not gone very long and he's reporting to us what's going on. So we kind of hurry back on down. And what we see is that uh, Yoshi Thiel, who made the offering appeal this morning, is kneeling in front of a man who has collapsed right there in the main aisle of the terminal. And he has an oxygen mask on the man's face. Standing next to him is our eighth grade teacher, Brandy Geddes. And the story is this, that as they're walking off the airplane, a few rows behind us, the man collapses right there between the jetway and the main aisle. And guess what people do? They walk on by. And so here's our eighth grade teacher and our student missionary, and they determine that they ought to see what's going on. They bend over the man. He has almost no pulse. And pretty soon, our eighth grade teacher begins giving CPR. Well, it's a fatiguing experience. And she trades off with Yoshi Thiel. And they trade off with one more American nurse that has stopped. Now, the tragedy of this situation is not that the man perishes. He will survive. The tragedy is the lack of preparedness that was in the uh, infrastructure of this, of this airport. This is what happens. They come out with an oxygen mask and a clear rubber hose. Do you notice that anything might be missing? There is no tank. The United Airlines employee has to rush back onto the airplane to get the tank to connect to the hose. Standing nearby is a man with a stethoscope. When you see a man with a stethoscope, what do you think? You think doctor. I don't think so. Um, he, he was hardly involved. In the process of the experience, we're wondering, how come there's no one here from the EMT services? And the United Airlines representative says, well, they won't call the ambulance until you get him stabilized. And he looks at them and they say, and he says, I know, it sounds backwards, doesn't it? And so there is a El Salvadorian national standing there holding, I don't know if it's saline or whatever, and there's an American nurse who's taken over and given directions, and eventually the man kind of coughs and sputters, and a pulse comes back, and he can talk. And we do see uh, a stretcher coming up with some individuals. Now, I'd like to suggest this morning that this is the metaphor for many American churches. And I'd like to suggest that it's a metaphor even for some Seventh-day Adventist churches. That the world is in serious trouble. And we look like we're ready. And we want to be ready. We might even have a stethoscope and an oxygen mask in our arsenal. But it might be that there's no oxygen to supply to a world that is in cardiac arrest. Hearts failing them for fear. And this morning, I want to reacquaint you, I believe, the online audience, with those that are with me here this morning. As we have dedicated the Mora family, along with Dr. Kuhn and the missions department at the seminary, we are rededicating, as it were, every time we dedicate a family like this, ourselves to the primacy of reaching the lost. You see, I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel, saying with a loud voice, Fear God and give glory to Him, for the hour of His judgment has come. 
You see, friends, we are living in the final hours. The sands of time are coming to the, the, the isthmus, the little neck of the hourglass, ready to pile on to all the earth gets, and time will be finished. And there are people who don't know God, and they need to understand who He is so they could make an intelligent choice. Take your Bibles this morning, if you would, and open them up to the book of Luke. The book of Luke, chapter 10. Now, of course, Luke is the physician author. And in his book, he records some very interesting details. What I want everybody listening to me to know is this. And I'm going to read a quote of which you can find 654 others that are very much like this quote. So listen carefully. All I did was Google one word. All right? I put in the search engine one word. I was at the Ellen White estate, so it wasn't truly a Google. But nonetheless, you understand what I'm saying. I stuck this one word in the search bar of the Ellen White estate. Here it is. You check me out. I wish you would. Because if she's right, and we've got the mask and we've got the hose, but we don't have the oxygen, maybe this morning we'll open the supply. The word I Googled was the word aggressive. Here we go. The persecution that came upon the church in Jerusalem resulted in giving a great impetus to the work of the gospel. So let's make sure we've got the formula right. Persecution doesn't mean disaster when God's in charge. Difficulties doesn't mean the demise of the church when God's the superintendent of the work. Persecution is actually God's instrumentality at times to achieve some things that a good life might not achieve for us. Success, she goes on to write, had attended the ministry of the Word in that place. We're talking about Jerusalem. And there was danger that the disciples would linger there too long, unmindful of the Savior's commission to go to all the world. Now, this next sentence is where the word aggressive is used, so make sure you're paying attention because if you want to be a winner, not a loser, if you want to be a victor, not a victim, this next sentence is super important. She writes, forgetting. Is there anything as Adventists we could have culturally, individually, or corporately forgotten? Forgetting. And maybe we've forgotten what they were forgetting. Forgetting. That strength to resist evil, there you go, you want to be a victor, not a victim? Strength to resist evil is best gained by aggressive service. Now listen, you don't want inconvenient pastors. You don't want people that poke at you and remind you that hanging in the balance is eternal life. You don't want to be reminded that when Jesus puts the crown on your head, it's a victor's crown, not gotten through your strength, not gotten by your great spiritual might, gotten as a gift and gotten in cooperation by receiving the indwelling Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit to win, not lose. But I want you to know something. This great church, this wonderful church with a legacy of aggressive missionary service is languishing on the stretcher for lack of some oxygen. And we've got the mask up to people's face and we put it on the supposed template of the world's need. And yet it appears that our efforts at times are lifeless. 
the element of life that God wants to bring back into this church is going to be found when we hitch ourselves to the mighty engine of love for the lost. And it will be inconvenient and uncomfortable at first. But that is the instrumentality of reviving God's church collectively. And it's the instrumentality of reviving us individually. Forgetting that strength to resist evil is best gained by aggressive service. They began to think they had no work so important as that of shielding the church in Jerusalem from the attacks of the enemy. Oh my. (laughs) Shielding. Could we talk about shielding for just a moment? I don't think I've ever felt more vulnerable, more afraid, and more stressed out than when all I'm doing is shielding myself. What's Paul say? Come on now, let's get comfortable with what Paul says. He says, I'm not striking the air. He says, put on the full armor. He doesn't say get the shield and hunker down behind it and hide. He says, put on the helmet of salvation. Know you're you're saved whether you die in this effort or not. Put on the belt of truth so you're not operating with confusion and indecision. He says, put something on your feet so nobody can stamp on your big toe and put you out of commission. And that's the knowledge that this gospel's going to go. He says, take the sword. And he says, yes, you are going to need a breastplate of righteousness because the enemy's not going to sit back and not shoot at you. And occasionally something's going to get past the shield. Above all, take the shield of faith. But you know what? When we go to shielding, when we go into a defensive posture, we're like Saul hiding in the caves outside of the Philistine garrison. And we need somebody like a Jonathan and his armor bearer to come out of the hole and say, you know what, I'm tired of being scared and afraid while they shoot at us and and say things to us. It's time for us to go see if God will act on our behalf. And you know what, friends? Faith grows by exercise. Exercise is a tad bit uncomfortable, but the fruits of exercise are awfully enjoyable and certainly rewarding. It's time for us as a church, it's time for us as individuals to realize that every person counts and aggressive warfare is what is powerful in the element of my personal victory, let alone the victory of those I'm reaching. Last night I was here sharing with the young adult group that Pastor Andy leads. And, you know, I was reminding them for the ones that are stuck in pornography and sexual sin, the only thing that's going to get you out, the only thing that's going to get you out is when you turn your back on it and you give your heart away to love somebody. Love's the only thing that's going to purify your soul. Love's the only thing that has the power to remake your appetites. Love's the only thing that's going to lift you out of the cesspool and put you on the mountaintop. Love for God And if you're a young man, love for that young lady. If you're a young woman, love for that young man. This aggressive service, which is so inconvenient, which makes you tired and uses up a lot of your extra time, this aggressive service has the power to transform you in spite of yourself. But shielding ourselves, this was never God's plan. Instead of educating new converts to carry the gospel to those who had not heard it, they were in danger of taking a course that would lead to be that would lead all to be satisfied with what had been accomplished. To scatter his representatives abroad where they could do work for others, God permitted persecution to come upon them. Driven from Jerusalem, the believers went everywhere preaching the word. Well, I need you to know something, something you already know, but it's not a preacher's job to tell you much of anything new, just to remind you of what you already know. For hence, persecution is breaking upon the Christian church right now. And there are some 
out of conscientious conviction, who believe that bodily autonomy, especially in an age of rapid response, is still part of the stewardship. But more than that, whether you served with risk and now are being told to serve under compulsion as a medical employee or a governmental employee or whatever it might be, you need to understand we can see the power of the world to eclipse, as it were, liberty, freedom of movement and freedom of personal choice. So it doesn't matter where you are. In March of 2020, the world changed rapidly for a much longer period of time than we could have ever have imagined. And those final movements that can be rapid ones, now as we watch the news and we listen to our radios, what we're seeing is there's this ongoing battle over what it means for governmental involvement in our lives, discussions with labor unions and other places like that, individualities, or I should say corporate entities or organizations that God tells us through his prophet are going to be pivotal in the experience of the end and not pivotal in a good way. Looking at Luke chapter 10, we have this amazing story that's being told by Jesus. It's recorded by Luke. Jesus has sent the 70 out. I want to make sure you understand the picture frame of where we are. Look at chapter 9, verse 57. I want to make sure you understand Jesus raises the bar on discipleship. He doesn't make it easy to follow him. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I'll follow you wherever you go. Jesus said, Luke 9, 58, the foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And he said to another, follow me. But he said, Lord, permit me first to go bury my father. But he said to him, allow the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim everywhere the kingdom of God. And another also said to him, I'll follow you, Lord, but first let me say goodbye to those at home. And Jesus said, no one putting his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. We certainly have a high-cost Savior who's paying the ultimate price for us, but he's not signing people up for a moment of convenience and comfort inside a new paradigm of religiosity. We have a God who's actually saying, it's all got to go on the altar. All right, let's go to chapter 10. Now after this, the Lord appointed 70 others, and he sent them in pairs ahead of him to every city and place where he himself was going to come. Sounds a little bit like what Jesus wants done on planet earth as he appears soon in the clouds, everywhere. And yes, you can go electronically in some places, and yes, you cannot. And he was saying to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray or beseech, this version says, the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Now, this morning, I'm one of the beseechers. I'm one of the prompters. I'm one of the prayers. As you go through your life, are you looking at the world through the eyeglasses of a ripe harvest? Do you not think there are people out there who wonder what's going on? Are there not myriads of thousands, yea, millions, who are curious to know what in the world is happening to our world, to our country? And we're listening to this phrase, which is only going to go to a crescendo. And that phrase is, common good. And whether it has to do with a pandemic or whether it has to do with a warming world, we should expect that phrase only to take on more power as time goes by. And the idea that in the midst of the coming crisis in which the world will turn back to religion, the prophecies tell us, that we would exercise our own individuality about religious exercise, 
That, my friends, is going to put us in a pretty unenviable position in the eyes of the masses. Are you going through your day realizing that every person you see is somebody that God might be connecting you to and without artificially creating the connection, are we looking at the world through the eyes of a harvester? Are we paying attention to the people around us or are we simply enjoying the wonderful life that American privileges have afforded us? Open your eyes. The harvest is plentiful even right now. Verse 3, go, behold, I send you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Now, I'm going to contrast that in a few minutes with a statement of the almost invincibility of these people. But Jesus doesn't say you adopt their attitudes and their mentalities. You are different. And yes, they have the advantage, as it were. Verse 4, carry no money belt, no bag, no shoes, greet no one on the way. Whatever house you enter, first say, peace be to this house. And if a man of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you. Stay in that house, eating and drinking what they give you. For the laborer is worthy of his wages. Do not keep moving from house to house. And whatever city you enter and they receive you, eat what is set before you. And heal those in it who are sick and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. Now, I want to hit the pause button. There are obviously different ways to prepare for different missions. In this case, to the communion of the Israelite family, the nation itself, Jesus is taking advantage of the laws of hospitality and the way strangers are to be treated, itinerant ministers. There are other missions where God actually had servants and individuals who prepared themselves for their travel. But there is this God dependency written in the narrative here that is what he is seeking to develop in us. And there are going to be moments when there is no way this could happen and it looks foolhardy to do, but the Spirit is prompting you. My wife just told me a story shared at a teacher worship over at Ruth Murdoch. A teacher at our university was prompted to share all the money in her wallet with a student. She thought to herself, that's ridiculous. I don't know if she said to herself, that's not the Holy Spirit. She didn't have a lot of money in her wallet. But she didn't do it. The student got up and he left. She left. It was a woman. Important to the story. The next time the class came around, that teacher and that student in the same room The Spirit is impressing the lady again. Share all the money that's in your wallet. Now, this time she has a little bit more. She has $40. Not a lot of money, but our teachers don't make a lot of money. They're missionary teachers. Can you say amen? Amen. And the Holy Spirit is prompting her, share all the money that's in your wallet. The student makes no eye contact with the teacher, so it's not going to be a natural encounter. But the teacher this time says to herself, I will do it. So she stops the student on the way out who happens to be a single mother. The student says, I have run out of money to buy diapers for my child. I've asked my friends, they don't have the money. And I think as the story is told, if I'm telling it properly, that even that very morning, she was 
checking with her friends. None of them had any money to loan her, so they got down on their knees and they prayed. And that teacher was sensitive to the Spirit, praise God, and she emptied her wallet into the hands of this young single mother so a journey of education and preparation to serve God in his church somewhere could go forward and a little baby could have some basic comfort and a mama could have reassurance there's a God on the throne who still provides for the needs of his children. You see, there are going to be moments in time when it looks almost as impossible as starting out on a journey with no extra food and no extra money. God's going to have to be in this thing somewhere or it's not going to work. Well, I'm here to tell you, friends, our churches and our schools in too many places are languishing already to where either in desperation they will give up and die or they're going to turn and they're going to say, Lord, we've kind of gone a long ways in the wrong direction, but Help us not to turn to the left or the right. And I pray, please revive us. Show us you're in our midst. And you see, friends, seven or eight years ago, we wouldn't have had the wherewithal to commission the Mora family to go anywhere because there were moments we weren't putting all the lights in our light fixtures because we didn't have any money. And that's a sad place for a church with almost a 1,000 members to be. But God is on the throne and he is seeking to strengthen his people so that the work can go forward. And it's a baby step and then a bigger step and then maybe a little pace that speeds up and maybe even a run. But they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and they shall not faint. Verse 10, whatever city you enter and they do not receive you, go out into its streets and say, even the dust of this city which clings to our feet, we wipe off and protest against you. Is that personal offense or is that a warning that what we have to share with you matters for eternity? Be sure of this, that the kingdom of God has come near. I say to you, you'll be more tolerable on the day of Sodom than for that city. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. These are Israelite towns. For if the miracles that have been performed in Tyre and Sidon, which occurred in you, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it'll be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, will not be exalted to heaven, will you? You'll be brought down to Hades. The one who listens to you listens to me. Let's make sure we get that part of the formula understood. If in the spirit of the Lord we're following his promptings, it's not about us. So whether we stumble or bumble, at least if we do what he said... The, the information, the invitation was given, and the one who rejects you rejects me, and he who rejects me rejects the one who sent me. Listen, God has always tried to awaken his own people first. Hear me, all my friends, Seventh-day Adventist friends. When Paul went around with the New Testament gospel, where did he go first? He always went to the Jewish synagogues first. Why? Because it was their privilege to hear before anybody else heard, and it was their privilege to be a part of the proclamation. In this moment in earth's history, God's trying to awaken his remnant church with this sense of his love and a love that grows for people who have never met him. God is seeking to do for us, but if you think the epitaph of this moment is only for Bethsaida and Chorazin and Capernaum, think again. Woe unto you, Burying Springs. Woe unto you, Cicero. Woe unto you, Bethsaida, Maryland. Woe unto you, Silver Springs. Woe unto whoever. Because Jesus gives special privileges of knowing him and privileges of sharing him, but those privileges, without being taken advantage of, turn into absolute curses because what we have is a stewardship. 
were five and ten talent people. By knowledge given to us by those who have come before us, just the very knowledge that you don't burn in hell forever. And there's a judgment going on. And there's a return that's going to be literal, visible, audible. All of these things are truth that will keep somebody from being deceived. Don't go turn on to your internet. Don't go to that that app. Don't turn on the television. Stay away from that radio channel when Satan shows up impersonating Jesus. Millions don't know this. And because we're being taught that seeing is believing, they're going to be deceived. And what do we care? That's kind of the issue. But let's get right down to the real nitty-gritty. Verse 17, after they come back, the 70 returned with joy, saying, Lord, I mean, it turned out better than they could have ever imagined. Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I was watching Satan fall from heaven like lightning. Is this while they're gone? Is this while he's holding them up in prayer? Is this just a memory of the war that started in heaven? Behold, verse 19, I have given you What's the next word? Authority, power. I have given you authority. Now, before we go to the next little bit, I want you to know that every time Jesus talks about giving them power, it's for taking the message to somebody else. So if the power is flowing through you, this is why when you forget that aggressive warfare for others is the salvation of your own self, when the power is flowing through you, you are being changed. And when there's not enough cross in your life to sacrifice, to suffer, and to serve, you're choosing to unidentify with the only identifying mark of the remnant throughout eternity. They bear the marks of the cross in their person. Every act of self-denial and love on behalf of someone else that inconveniences us or causes us to suffer, that impatient word that we, we deny through the power of the Holy Spirit, every cross we bear is a transformation into the very nature of God Himself. For it was that cross before anyone could envision it in their mind that was in the mind of Christ before the foundation of this world that he knew he would bear that was born out in every act of humility and love for you and me. And it is the cross-bearing of going for the lost that actually transforms me, transforms you. If you won't take up the cross, Jesus says, there's nothing in which we have any real connection. You may sit in the same pews. You may go to the same church. You may be descendants of the same Abrahamic covenant. But what will really show that you have the heart of heaven is when the love of God can motivate you to surrender and sacrifice and serve like I have for you. All authority. I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing will injure you. Now, pastor, in the long lineage of Adventist missionary work, this has not come true. I just want you to remember what another Bible writer said. 
recording the words of Jesus. Don't fear those who can kill the body. That's not the ultimate final injury. Now, mind you, there was a dead snake in the road last week when I was there when there was a scorpion right at the door of my room. I got a picture of it. It's probably in the slideshow. And they found one over in their room where the rest of them were staying. And I've been stung and I've been bitten. And others before us have suffered. The Apostle Paul, he was stoned so badly they thought, throw him on the rubbish dump. But I want to tell you, he also shook a snake off his hand that should have caused him to swell up and die within a few minutes. And I want to tell you, he suffered on a boat for more than two weeks and saved everybody in the process and his worst enemies the Roman centurion himself was now granting Paul special favors and when those people came out of the crowd as they marched those hundred miles from the on the Appi Forum Spirit of Prophecy tells us Acts of the Apostles people would see Paul in chains an old man and they'd see him and they'd shriek out with joy and they'd come out of the crowd and they'd try to give him a hug or fall at his feet and the Roman centurion would stop everything because he understood why. I want to tell you something. There is no future that is without risk. There's none. And the risks are growing. People in this congregation have lost their jobs. There's a nurse that attends here who got COVID serving as a nurse and now got the pink slip because she believes she should have some bodily autonomy. I'm here to tell you, friends, I stood in this hallway last night and talked to somebody who works for the government. Fortunately, this person is close enough to where they can retire. When in the course of human events have we decided, you can put smallpox or whatever you want in there, when in the history of our nation of almost 250 years have we ever behaved quite like this? And what I want to say to you this morning is there is no future without risk. The risks are going to grow. The stakes are going to get higher. It's okay. Because all authority has been given to you and been given to me as long as I'm in God's will doing what God said to do, especially when it involves making sure somebody else understands their salvation's already been purchased, their best friend is Jesus, and he is coming back very soon. I'm here to appeal to you today. This gospel is unstoppable. It's not stopping. Oh, the devil's going to try to shake you off that train. This train we sing is bound for glory. He's going to try to scare you off of it. But I'm here to tell you today, somebody in your sphere needs the good news. And somebody who gives the good news is going to continue to embody the beauty of the one whom the, new good, the good news is all about. 
And if there ever was a moment for the Seventh-day Adventist Church to have a wake-up moment, it is now. We are a missionary people, a missionary band. Our kids used to sing it two generations ago. We are a missionary band, a missionary band, a missionary band. Oh, I know, it's, I'm, I'm older than some of you. Some of you sang that song. It's time to start singing it again. It's all right to sing about how much Jesus understands us. That's good too. But Jesus doesn't understand when we don't do anything. There's supposed to be oxygen at the end of the clear plastic tube. It's the breath of life. It's the gospel. And in your home and in your school and in this church and everywhere you go, the beauty of what Ellen White says, ministry of healing, you're supposed to be a missionary first to your fellow workers. You didn't come to church here this morning just to worship, I hope. You should have come as a missionary. And everybody born into the kingdom of God is born, Desire of Ages says, as a missionary. That's why those two demoniacs who wanted to stay with Jesus, he said no. This is an unstoppable gospel. And if you've hitched your car to that train, inconvenient as it is, it's going all the way to the final destination, praise God. It's stopping at the heavenly depot, and we're supposed to get more people on it on the way. I'm appealing to everybody. I see young people here this morning, lots from our academy, others from different ages of life. You are called to live for Jesus. He's coming soon. Middle-aged parents, your home is to be a church, a sanctuary, a haven. Seniors, grandparents, you are to exercise the full wisdom of your years to save those younger than you from making mistakes that could cost them eternal life. Be bold. You're to be honored. And you're not worried. You've crossed through those thresholds, at least by God's grace. May the Lord help us.